ಕಂಪ್ಯೂಟರ್ um just for reference if you don't have the book it's much better to have the book uh so that you can follow along with it now what is this text and what are we doing the whole purpose of the vedanta study group was to have an advanced study group where you could study the original texts the sources of vedanta in some depth um so we have done various kinds of texts we have uh, in hollywood i did the drig drishya viveka and then we did the aparoksha anubhuti that was in general for everybody but in the vedanta study group we at one time we did a little bit of the panchadashi um and recently we have been doing the mandukya upanishad the fundamental texts of advaita vedanta the fundamental texts of advaita vedanta are the upanishads um the in fact vedanta itself is uh, is is the upanishads it, uh, are collectively known as vedanta it's one definition of vedanta and the wisdom of the upanishads was given out in a practical form by krishna to arjuna in the bhagavad gita so that has also become one of the fundamental texts of uh, vedanta and the third pillar think of it as a tripart with three legs so um no that's not a good example because the upanishads are not just like one leg it is the base it's a fundamental uh, the bhagavad gita is actually derivative from the upanishads and one more derivative text is the brahma sutras which discuss philosophical and textual issues arising out of a study of the upanishads anyway the point being being that if you want to know what is the textual basis of the of vedanta as a whole it will be these three uh texts or groups of texts the upanishads are a group of texts uh, that is vedanta fundamentally and the bhagavad gita and uh, the brahma sutra along with the commentaries written written by the great masters of vedanta like adi shankaracharya depending on the commentaries different schools of vedanta have come out and we are studying one school our primary school is the advaita vedanta non dual vedanta that's what we study that's what i teach now a lot of other texts were written the, these later texts are often classified as prakarana uh, there is no e- easy translation of that prakarana literally uh, is usually translated as an introductory text though some of these texts are not at all introductory they are pretty advanced but they all teach the same thing as the uh, upanishads do the text which we are going to take up is one such prakarana the vedanta sara uh it is actually an introductory test text um why are we doing this 
see, my idea was to study the Upanishads together. And I decided to start at the top, begin with the end, the, the most powerful, the most direct, the most powerful, of the, uh, the most uh, uh, compact of the Upanishads, the Mandukya Upanishad, along with Gaurapada's Karikas, which we successfully, by the grace of God, we, we studied it. And it is complete and it is uh, available as uh, podcasts, casts, free, podcasts free, free to download from the internet. So that's done. But that is not the, us- the way it's usually studied. Um, nobody starts out with the Mandukya generally. It was more my uh, ambition than anything else. It's more my, for my own sake than for uh, the sake of the students. But having done that, now we can take the scenic route. We can take our time and do it slowly and the way it is supposed to be done. So what, would, what one would do is go through the uh, major Upanishads. The major Upanishads being uh, the Upanishads selected by Adi Shankaracharya to write commentaries on Bhashya. Bhashya means commentary. So he did it for 10 Upanishads and arguably an 11th one. The 10 Upanishads being the uh, Isha, Kena, Katha, Mundaka, Mandukya, Aitareya, Taittiriya, uh, the Prashna Upanishad, uh, the uh, Chandogya, and the Brihadaranyaka. Isha, Kena, Patha, Prashna, Munda, Mandukya, Titiri, Aitareyam, Chandogyam, Brihadaranyakam, Tata. So there's little Sanskrit words which gives you the whole whole syllabus. So these are 10 uh, Upanishads, which we now call major Upanishads. And the 11th, which is, which might be Shankaracharya's commentary on, which has comes with Shankaracharya's commentary is the Shvetashvatara. But it is doubted by scholars, both traditional and modern, whether Shankaracharya's, Shankaracharya actually wrote that commentary to some later Shankaracharya, not the original one. Anyway, so that should be the syllabus. But what I thought was, before we plunge ahead and take the long scenic route through the Upanishads themselves, uh, it would be helpful to do one more introductory text. Why do I say one more? Because we have done the Drig Drishya Viveka, which is an introductory text like this. We have done the Aparokshanubhuti, which is another introductory text like this. But the merit of this text is, this is, this is where traditional Vedanta students start. For example, when we were novices in our main monastery at Belurmat, which Prakhyat has his, has his, ba- his background. So when we were novices there, we were introduced to Vedanta, Adv- always Advaita Vedanta, through this text. So in the first year of our studies, we would study this text. Um, and of course, make an entry into everything else. So why did I not start with this text? And why did I start with Drig Drishya Viveka and Aparokshanubhuti? Well, f- frankly, for... Uh, advertisement purposes. Drigdrishya Viveka and Aparokshanabhuti are uh, interesting, racy. Things are happening. Drigdrishya Viveka opens with a bang. The first verse itself is tremendous. And Aparokshanabhuti is also very, very interesting. So is this going to be a dull journey? Not really. The only problem with this text is it is actually, it's very useful, but it's u- useful precisely because it's a book of definitions. You'll be surprised at the elegance and precision you know, definition of what is Brahman, what is God, what is the absolute, uh, what are we, sentient beings, define it precisely so that we don't have to quarrel about what we are talking about later on. It's all precisely defined, even Maya, most difficult of all, all of it precisely defined and laid out for us. So 
and it's a wonderful sketch of the entire Advaita Vedanta philosophy. So this is where we start. Now, a monk who is a highly trained scholar uh, does not told me once that you should never do these things. Like start with a book like this, uh, because he says one should always go to the originals. He said that we were always taught in a university by, uh, by our professors that we should always go straight to the originals. That has merit. The problem with starting with a text like this is, remember, this text comes um, around 15th century. So about 500, 600 years ago. But three or 4,000 years after the uh, originals, the Upanishads, which it purports to summarize and explain. So what this text does is it's a highly systematized exposition. Very elegant, very neat, easy to understand, uh, easy to base yourself on but always good to remember that this is not the original. A lot of philosophizing has gone on for thousands of years, literally before this, and especially after Shankaracharya for about 800 years before this text comes along. So a um, lot of argumentation, a lot of back and forth until a system is established. But a system, like any system, has the advantage of being neat and geometric, but also a few steps removed from the truth. Uh, it's uh, uh, good for our intellect. Right? It's easily digestible. But it somehow uh, does not um, totally, accurately, faithfully represent the, the vibrancy, the aliveness of the uh, originals. It's more like a map and not the actual place you want to visit. So this is the, the demerit. But then what is the merit of studying this? See, if you are a university scholar, you would do what that scholarly monk told me, that you go origin to the original text straight away. But they would do that because the whole purpose is to study the original text. That's the whole purpose. Our whole purpose as a spiritual seekers is, does not end with studying the original text. It's actually to understand this system, to practice it and to realize it in our lives. So if there are books which help us out, most welcome. Most welcome. We just should have that buyer beware that we are looking at Advaita Vedanta through the lens of a very um, uh, of, of a late philosopher in the Advaita tradition. It's, it's through a particular lens. It's a particular systematization. It's, for, it's like a textbook for, for students. So that's what's going on here. So having said that, a little bit about... Um, yeah, so a little bit about the author. Sadananda Yogindra was a monk about um, maybe, you know, uh, 600 years ago. And uh, this book, since he wrote it, he wrote it for, for students who want an introduction into the philosophical system of Advaita Vedanta. Um, uh, since that time, traditional Vedantic scholars have been introduced to Advaita Vedanta through this book. Um, and as I said, in our monastery, when we studied Vedanta systematically, we were introduced it, uh, to it through this book. So we're going to do this. Um, it's a short text. In fact, recently I taught it uh, at the uh, Vivekananda Vidyapeet uh, in Wayne, New Jersey. 
So, and I have been teaching it. I, I, I was the teacher, the Acharya, who taught this text at the training center for the Brahmacharis, for the newcomers, the novices, for several years. I think five or six years I taught this one after another. I taught it, one cycle I taught at, at Hollywood also. So I've been doing this for a long time. Um, yes. What else did I want to say? Sometimes I usually require a, a blackboard or something to write on. So since we don't have that here, I'll make this little, quite unimpressive um, PowerPoints to share with you. So here goes a little bit of information. How do we do this? Share screen. Okay, can you see the uh, PowerPoint? Yes? Yes, ma'am. Let me just maximize it now. Okay, as I said, it's a 15th century text. Sadananda Yogendra wrote it. Um, there have been multiple commentaries on this because it's, it's so much so popular over the centuries and, and has been in, in use. So three commentaries. So this is an introductory text, but uh, there are commentaries on this text. Nothing that we need to be concerned with, but I'll be explaining the text and you might at some point wonder where, where am I getting all this? So some of it is drawn from these traditional commentaries. The first commentary is called the Vidwan Manoranjini written by another monk, Ramatirtha, sometime after Sadananda Yogindra. Literally the word Vidwan Manoranjini means the delight of scholars. So the, the commentary itself is uh, called the delight of scholars. And you can imagine it. The commentary is more difficult than the uh, original. Um, the next one is by another monk called Rasingha Saraswati. And uh, that commentary is called the Subodhini, literally, which means easily understood and which is more difficult than the earlier commentary. Uh, and the last one, which I'll be relying on a little bit more for this, this time around teaching, was by another uh, Sanskrit, uh, another philosopher, Ap Apodeva, uh, which is called Balabodhini, which is the most difficult of them all. And it means, wait for it, easily understood by children. Balabodhini, for the easy instruction of little children. So why would, just as a matter of curiosity, why would one write complicated um, commentaries for what is meant to be a textbook. What these commentaries actually do is they fill in. The, this book is a bare bones outline of Advaita Vedanta. But if you want the details, you go to the commentaries. Uh, and they, they provide you explanations, arguments, and so on and so forth. Anyway, we won't be seeing any of this too much. It'll be in the background uh, when I'm explaining stuff. Okay, that's it. Now, um, Let's start the text. Use the PDF I've shared with you. This text and the PDF are not the same. The PDF, the PDF is the original Sanskrit with the English transliteration. It's the advantage of having the English translation. So you can follow the chant, uh, if you like, with an English translation made by one of our Swamis. It was never published as a book. This is the book available on the market, uh, Vedanta Sara of Sadananda, translated by Swami Nikhilananda of our uh, East Sides uh, Center. Uh, it's very easily available on YouTube, or, uh, sorry, not YouTube, on Amazon, on um, 
the Vedanta Press, I think just four or five dollars, uh, it's inexpensive. I recommend that you order it. I had sent out the links. If you got that email, you'll find the links where you can order this book. Some of you already have it. So today I will, uh, I'll make a beginning. We shall start the text today. And just as always, Prakhyat, this time is our, uh, our coordinator. Just as always, he'll keep a lookout for people coming in, for uh, people raising their hands in questions. As we go along, raise your hands or write a question in the chat. Um, I, we will stop once in a while to deal with the questions and have a little discussion. So let's make a beginning. This is Vedanta Sara. The beginning in the, uh, the first verse, the first two verses are invocations. Let me share, just for today, I'll share the PDF, uh, but otherwise you can look at it on your, uh, on your own screens. This is a little cumbersome. Can you see the PDF? Can you see the PDF? Yes. Yes, ma'am. Right. So we're going to do the first verse now. The first two verses are invocations. First verse. Akhandam Satchidanandam Avang Manasagocharam Atmanam Akhiladharam Ashraye Bhishta Siddhaye what does it mean? I take refuge in the self, uh, the indivisible existence, consciousness, bliss, absolute, beyond the reach of words and thought, the substratum of all for the attainment of my cherished desire. Okay. So what's happening here? Invocation. It was the style in, uh, in Sanskrit text to start with an invocation. Usually it was in a, a prayer to God, or in praise of one's guru. Uh, that it was just the way the text started. Now, why would one do that? Um, among the traditional Hindu philosophies is the Nyaya system. They are the logicians. And if you think Vedanta is complicated or too theoretical, you should try some Nyaya text. For example, a Nyaya text would start, they have an introductory text just like this, to start the Nyaya system, which is called Tarka Sangraha, which means, literally it means a collection of arguments. <laughs> so that also starts with an invocation, but here we proceed along merrily, but in the Nyaya text, you cannot. Everything is to be questioned. So the moment there's an invocation, the question is raised, why is there an invocation? What are you doing? Why are you, <laughs> why are you praying to God or Guru or whatever it is? And the answer given there is, uh, for the uh, overcoming of obstacles and the successful completion of the text. So the author is play, praying for um, overcoming all obstacles to the project of writing the book maybe and so that the text is completed. Maybe it gets uh, good reviews and the wide circulation down the ages, which I think the invocation did succeed. We are, st we are still studying it now uh, in, <laughs> in the, uh, Manhattan in, in the 21st century. So in Sanskrit, uh, vigna nivaranartham to overcome obstacles and grantha samapti parisamapti artham for successful completion of the text. For the students who are studying it, it just might mean uh, overcoming the uh, obstacles for our study and uh, completing the uh, text. So that's why we do it. 
So the questioner would, will not let go in the, immediately. There'll be further questions. But wait, we know of so many examples where books are written without any invocation and they are happily completed. I'm sure today, especially if you go to Barnes and Noble and pick out books at random, you'll hardly find a book with an invocation to God or, or Guru. And they are all completed and they are on the shelves of Barnes and Noble. So how can you say an invocation helps in completing the text? One. Two, we also know of many texts, this is the question, the doubt. We also know of many texts which have beautiful invocations in the finest Sanskrit and were never completed. Maybe the author abandoned it halfway or maybe it's lost or something like that. So what do you say to that? You know, the argument is invocation helps you to complete the text. And the counter argument is there are many texts without any invocations, nicely completed. And there are many texts with invocations we've never completed. And the reply to this is, I'm giving you a taste of how the Nyaya people do things, not as Vedantins. Thankfully, we are, we are spared all that. The answer from the uh, Nyaya philosopher is that, well, in the case of the books which are completed without invocation, the author had lots of good karma in the past life. He must have done lots of invocations in the past life. So his good karma carries over and his new book is completed without any invocation. And in the case of books which, were, which had invocations but were not completed, well, obviously, karma was really bad and so it needed more invocations. And uh, that's why the, due to lack of sufficient invocation, the book was not completed. And they go on like this. Uh, but you might think this is... Uh, uh, what's the point of this kind of argumentation? But the ultimate result, which they came to, the Nyaya philosophers, and which is why I raised this topic at all, it's pretty reasonable. They come to the conclusion that the invocation is just a matter of culture. If you are a cultured person in this kind of an environment, this kind of a setup, you start any uh, important task with a prayer to God. Uh, with an acknowledgement of your guru's contributions. And that's just being culture. Um, shishta, they call it shishta in Sanskrit, a cultured person. It's a mark of a cultured person. Uh, another question comes up. So it's good. Why are you doing it aloud? You could do it in your mind. And the answer would be shishya shikshartham for teaching students. So if, if the teacher does an invocation in his or her mind and goes ahead, how will the students learn unless you do it and you write it down and you chant it together? So this is the way these arguments go. But anyway, we have an invocation here. Now let me get into the invocation. The two invocations, first and second. The second one will be about the guru. The first one is about Brahman or the ultimate reality. In this one verse, the first verse itself, the author Sadananda, basically covers the entire teaching of the Advaita Vedanta uh, system in substance, in, in uh, essence. What is he saying? I um, salute or I take refuge in, ashray, I take refuge in, in, in that ultimate reality, which is akhandam. The word akhandam means non-divided. Khandam means divided, different. Akhandam, undivided non-different, akhandam, satchidanandam, existence, consciousness, bliss. So let us uh, stop here and see what it means. The ultimate reality according to Vedanta is devoid of any difference 
there is no difference, there is no division. Um, now, division or difference is the basis of our day-to-day -day life. And right here, I and you, we are different. It seems quite obvious. I'm in a different place, you're in a different place. Uh, I'm, I'm different from the instrument, the computer I'm using. Um, your computer is different from my computer. And there's this whole, if you look around the room, you'll find so many differences. Doors and windows and lights and fans and uh, dogs and cats and uh, men and women. Um, space and solid and liquid. So much difference all around seems to be full of difference. Now, to get a handle on differences, what kinds of difference are there? So in Vedanta, they talk about three kinds of differences. All differences may be classified under three kinds. Um, the three kinds of differences are, difference in Sanskrit is bheda. Bheda means different. Um, you know, Swami Abhedananda. Abheda means non-different. Veda, different. Abheda, non-different. So one who, whose bliss is in the non-different. Abhedananda, whose bliss is in Brahman, which is non-different. Anyway, so Bheda, difference is of three kinds, according to Advaita Vedanta. What are the three kinds? Vijati Abheda, um, Sajati Abheda, Swagat Abheda. Let me put it on the screen and then you can, you can take a look. Where did it go? Yes. Um, one second. What happened? Um, uh, are you able to see the uh, presentation? No. No, sir. One second. Yes. Now I can share. Technology is great, but it sometimes can be an impediment to learning. Okay, now you can see it. Yes. Three kinds of bheda, difference. So what are these three kinds of difference? Vijati abheda. Difference of kind. So for example, trees and rocks and animals and birds, they're, they're all different kinds of you know, things, of, of species, of, of classes. So these are vijatya, different kinds of things. Brahman, the ultimate reality, does not have this kind of difference. It's a, it's a tremendous claim. What does it mean? There is nothing apart from Brahman. So vijatya difference means there are other kinds of things. So I'm a human being, you're all human beings, but there are other kinds of things. There's the chairs we are sitting on. There are the computers we are using. There are different kinds of things from us. So Brahman does not, there's not, nothing that exists which is different from Brahman. Vijatiya Bheda means there is no non-Brahman in this world, which is a huge, huge claim, which we shall expl explore through the text slowly. But it just means all that we see is in some sense, it must be Brahman, and in the sense we take it to be. We take it to be, here is a computer, here is a person, here is a light, here is a table. That's that. The moment we say that's that, Vedanta is saying it's wrong. The, if you think 
it is just people and tables and chairs, then what you think are just people and tables and chairs, they are appearances. They cannot be real. Uh, they are actually, they ha have to be nothing other than Brahman. This is the claim. We'll see how it makes perfect sense. Now it seems crazy. We don't see Brahman anywhere. And here the claim is that there is nothing apart from Brahman. We see everything except your precious Brahman. And uh, uh, Vedanta is claiming Brahman is the only thing that there is. And there is, there is nothing different from Brahman. So Vijatiya Bheda is different of kind, just as trees and rocks are different and animals are different kinds of things. The second kind of difference is they are different, but of the same kind. So the question might be, like a polytheist might ask, yes, um, God exists, but there may be many gods. So you're right. It may be that there is only Brahman. There's nothing other than Brahman, but there could be more than one Brahman. So it's still Brahman, nothing other than Brahman, but several Brahmans. So an example of this kind of system might be the Sankhya system, where we are all pure consciousness. We are Purusha, pure consciousness. But each of us is a separate pure consciousness. There are multiple pure consciousnesses. And Vedanta says, no, not even that. Different of the same kind example is two mango trees. So in the, in the first example, it could be a mango tree and a rock and uh, uh, um, uh, maybe an elephant. They're different. But Sajati Abheda is two mango trees. Both are mango trees, but they're not the same. They're two different uh, uh, examples of the same kind of thing. In philosophy, this is called a type token difference. Same type, but two tokens of the same type. Mango tree, but two mango trees. They're different. Vedanta says no. There are no two Brahmans or three Brahmans or four Brahmans, nothing. There, there is only one reality. Not even a different Brahmans, but different things of the same kind. No. The absolute is one. All right. There might be another kind of difference. There are no different kinds of things, not even many things of the same kind. Only one thing. I get it. But that one thing could have internal differences. So like a mango tree, it has leaves and uh, roots and a branch and mangoes. And, um, so the mangoes and the root is not the same thing. The trunk and the branches are not the same thing. The leaves and uh, uh, the uh, twigs are not the same thing. Although they are all part of the same mango, mango tree. So is it possible that Brahman has internal differences? So... For example, an example would be the system of Vishishta Dvaita Vedanta, which says there is only one ultimate divine reality, but all of us, we are parts of it. And as parts, we are different. There are sentient beings, there are insentient beings, there's a material universe, and we are uh, conscious beings, all conscious beings, and the entire material universe, they are all part of one organic whole. But within that organic whole, there are differences. Uh, Brahman is, is the ultimate reality, but within Brahman, there are differences, internal differences. That's Vishishta Advaita. Vedanta is saying, Advaita Vedanta is saying, no, not even that. Um, there is no internal differentiation. All of it is just pure being, which is not different from pure consciousness, which is not different from pure bliss. Sat, Chit, Ananda. Is there anything apart from Satchidananda? Vijatiya Bheda, the first kind. Vedanta says, no. Is, are there many Satchidanandas, plural? Sajatiya Bheda, Advaita says, no. 
within Satchitananda, maybe there are three parts, you know, a Sat part, a Sit, um, you know, an existence part, a consciousness part, a bliss part, or like Vishnu has multiple hands and a head and a tummy and legs. No, none of that, no internal difference. It is one absolute without any internal differences and without any kind of anything other than that also. So this is the meaning of the word Akhandam, non-divided. So you can see a huge amount is packed into it. What is this non-divided reality? So I have this funny little story I, I usually do not fail to share. About 20 years ago, I was in, a, in a, an ashram and the Swami is a very big ashram with many units. So one of those units um, where a lot of work was done for poor kids of the neighborhood, um, they got a donation from a rich person and the rich person wanted a plaque to be put, put up, you know, and the plaque would say uh, that by the grace of uh, Sri Ramakrishna, uh, who, uh, who is a part of the partless infinite, who came as with, with, uh, with, with the gracious, uh, by the grace of Sri Ramakrishna, we are able to do this. And he, he's the, that rich person promised a certain amount of money. Now, when the head of that unit, the monk went to our head monk of the ashram, the head monk was, was uh, furious. He said, what? Sri Ramakrishna is a part of the partless Brahman. I will not allow the partless Brahman to be parted. And you know, he said, Akhand in Bengali, Akhanda, the same word, Akhanda. Brahman is Akhanda, without part. Don't you know your basic Vedanta? Haven't you studied Vedanta Sara? And he called us, a few of us, we are novices, we're just youngsters. Um, you guys read a lot. Tell me, am I right or, or is this person right? Can Akhanda Brahman, the partless, be parted? Can Sri Ramakrishna be a part of the partless? And we, of course, had to say, no, no, Swami. The funniest was the Swami who was receiving the donation. He was standing outside with an ashen face, you know. He said, I don't care if Brahman has parts or does not have parts. Uh, I just don't want my donation to be parted. I don't want to part with my donation. <laughs> so... Um, akhandam means partless. What is akhandam? Sat, chit, anandam. Sat means existence. Chit means consciousness. Ananda means bliss. I will not go into that because that will just take up every all the time. We have we have come we have become used to this terminology. Pure being, pure consciousness, pure bliss. What does it mean in Vivekananda's words? It is not that Brahman exists, but it is existence itself. It is not that Brahman knows, but that it is knowledge itself. It is not that um, Brahman is happy, but it is happiness itself. Okay, that sounds interesting. Um, let me stop the share. Can you all see me now? You can see me? Yes, sir. What does that mean? Brahman is not... Uh, not that Brahman exists, but it is existence itself. The moment we say existence, you know what comes to our minds? Things which exist. I exist, you exist, people exist. The chair I'm sitting on exists. The building and uh, even the air, even the space um, seems to be pretty empty, but in some sense it exists. Or more um, abstract things like numbers or ideas, in some sense they exist. So the moment we say existence, we think of things existing. But Vedanta is not talking about that. 
Vedanta is saying that at least conceive of existence itself. Instead of thinking of, say, waves, think of water. There are two ways of thinking of the relation between waves and water. You can think of a wave and it has water in it, but that would be a weird way of saying it. Wouldn't you rather say water is appearing as a wave? Yeah, that sounds more logical. Water is appearing as a wave. Similarly, Vedanta, what Vedanta wants to say is, can you think of existence appearing as chairs and tables? Existence is the reality. Being is the reality. And it appears as existing things. We tend to think things exist. It's like things have existence in them. That, that's, that's a weird way of putting it. But that's, that's what it means. It's like saying uh, a wave has water in it. You might ask, what's wrong with that? What's wrong is, we, it's like saying, like a bucket has water in it, a wave has water in it, but the wave is nothing apart from water. A bucket can exist without water, can be an empty bucket, but there's no such thing as an empty wave. The wave must be water. Similarly, um, when you come to existence, note, nothing can exist without existing. It sounds like a silly uh, tautological statement, but Nothing can exist without existence is exactly like saying there can be no wave without water. All things exist, which means the Vedantic way of putting it would be existence appears as all things. We say our language does, is not suited to this kind of thinking. Our language is very dualistic. So we say um, table exists, chair exists. Vedanta would like us to say existence tables or existence chairs it's murdering the language but uh, that's how what that's what Vedanta is trying to say the reality is existence and it manifests itself or we experience it as existing things when things come into existence it's not that existence has come into existence the thing has come into existence and the thing goes out of existence existence continues wave arises in water does not mean water has come into existence the wave has arisen in water, remains in water, dissolves back into water. All things in this universe, they arise in existence, they shine in existence, and they fade back into existence. Okay, that is, to put it in one word, sat. In Sanskrit, sat, pure being. Um, chit, I will not go into details, in the same pattern. Chit is consciousness. When we, the moment we say consciousness, we think of conscious thoughts, feelings, emotions, ideas, perceptions, understanding, memory, all of that. These are instances of consciousness. They're not consciousness itself. Consciousness is experienced in these moments. Uh, these are actually movements of the mind which shine in consciousness. Consciousness itself is not a thought, feeling, perception, memory, idea, none of it but they all shine in consciousness. And bliss, in the same pattern, I just leave you with this suggestion. Bliss is not a pleasant feeling or an exciting, thrilling experience. Bliss is that which is experienced as all kinds of joys of our world. Shankaracharya says, that ocean, the spray of which people in this world are madly running after. So imagine an ocean of bliss, little droplets of which are coming out as spray and people are madly running after that as the most attainable pleasures and joys of this world so that bliss which is not a particular kind of pleasure 
but rather the substratum of all things experienced as pleasant, happy, fulfilling. That is called Ananda. And that is Sat Chid Ananda. They are not three different things. They are not three different um, qualities. It's the same thing. Uh, this Satchidananda, he says, avang manasagocharam, not attainable by, not objectifiable by speech or by, by mind. Why not attainable by speech? I will not go into details here. I have given talks about this again and again. What can speech do? Speech can talk about things which are, you know, they say jati, guna, kriya, sambandha, rudhi. Those of you, if it rings some bells, you must have heard it at some time. Um, if something belongs to a class of objects, like a cow, this is a species of cow. So you see one instance and you say, that is a cow. How did you know? Because it belongs to a species which you are invoking. This is an instance of a species. So cow, you're using jati. But there is no species of Brahman. There's no species of Satchidananda. There's not a class, a set of Satchidananda. So you can say, aha, here's one of them. Here's a Brahman. No. So Brahman, you cannot use class or species um, to refer to Brahman. Um, quality. So red flower. The moment I say red flower, you can pick out the red flower, distinguish it from the blue and the violet and the orange and the yellow and bring me the red flower because red is a quality which helps you to distinguish that flower. You can use a quality to point out an object. But you can't use it for Brahman because Brahman is famously without any quality, without any attribute. Absolute is beyond attributes. Quality won't work. Action. So, you know, like the cook. Compliment the cook. The dish was delicious. How do you know what, is, what to do? By the activity. So you designate a person by the activity of cooking or driving or, you know, speaking or something. Uh, some activity. You can't do that for Brahman. Brahman has no activity. It's beyond all activity. So you can't use Kriya or action. Relation. Um, teacher. Makes sense only when they are students. Father. Makes sense only when there's a son or a daughter. Um, but Brahman, how will you use relation to designate Brahman? There's nothing. We just learned. There's nothing other than Brahman. So with what will Brahman have a relation? So you can't use relation to point to Brahman. And finally, conventional. Can't you just do it? You know, just say, um, when you say, this person is uh, Jim. So what do you say? Jim, this person is Jim. Not because of some class or uh, quality or action or relationship. Just be named this person Jim. So can't be name it. You know, you are using the words Brahman, Atman, something. Just name it. Just use a word. You can't do that. Because to just use a word, it's called conventional designation. To just use conventional designation, you have to point out the person. You have to say, this person is Jim. Unless you do that, you, you tell, tell me, go call Jim. I'll say, who is Jim? I, I don't know. Who is Jim? You have to point me out. Point it out. When you say, this baby from now on will be called Jane. You have to point out this baby. Which baby? If there are many babies, then we don't, it still won't work. Similarly, to use a name like Brahman or Atman, you have to point it out. What is Brahman or Atman? You can't point it out. Therefore, conventional designation won't work. The point being, none of the ways in which language functions works for the absolute. Unless the absolute is clothed in some name and form and function, you can't use language for it. So it says beyond the re uh, reach of speech, beyond the reach of mind, because 
mind itself shines in the light of consciousness. And with that consciousness, mind objectifies the world. Mind comprehends the world. But mind is itself illumined by consciousness, by Brahman. And so mind cannot illumine or objectify Brahman. We'll leave it at that. And um, now racing along a little further. Atmanam. All of this is what? It's you. We're talking about something extraordinarily abstract. Atmanam means the self. It is you, the self. When you say it cannot be objectified by mind, it's beyond the reach of speech, then we get the question that is it, um, is it unknowable? So we, we can't know it. You can't speak about it. You can't even think of If you can't think about it, you cannot speak about it. You can't know it. So what's the point of this entire exercise? He says, no, Atmanam, it's your very self. It is more than known. In fact, to know anything first, you have to be. For you to be a knower, you have to first exist. That existence, your pre-knowership existence, that's already there. That is what we are talking about. And then he says, Akhiladharam, the substratum of the entire universe. This is a word for God. Because in religion, God is defined, theistic religions, God is defined as the creator of the entire universe. The existence, um, the, that which projects the entire universe. So Akhiladharam means the substratum of the entire universe. And when you put these together, Atmanam Akhiladharam, the self, which is the substratum of the entire universe, you get the central Vedantic teaching. I am Brahman, that thou art. You're saying the self is that which is the substratum of the entire universe. In the words of Meister Eckhart, the ground of my soul and the ground of God are one and the same. That which is the, the reality of my soul and that which is the reality of God are one and the same. This is exactly what is meant here. Atmanam makhiladharam, the self which is the foundation of the entire universe. Literally it's saying, you are Brahman. This is, this is the meaning. Ashray, I take refuge in. Now, this is a traditional way of approaching God. But what, what does this mean in this context? Ashray literally means I take refuge in Vishnu or in Durga. The worship of Durga is coming up. I take refuge in Durga. That's understandable. I take refuge in God but, or a refuge in the Buddha. Yeah. But what does this mean? I take refuge in myself. So it basically means here, ashraya means the only way you take refuge in yourself is to recognize yourself as the substratum of the entire universe. That this one reality in which the universe appears and you, the knower of the universe, appears, they are one reality. Atman is Brahman. Recognizing this is taking refuge. The meaning of taking refuge is this. Why are we doing all this? Abhishta Siddhaye, for the fulfillment of my cherished goal. Abhishta, cherished goal. Siddhaye for success, for success. What is the cherished goal? Two meanings here. One meaning is um, um, for enlightenment. The whole purpose is for realizing that I am Brahman. The whole of Advaita Vedanta. That's my cherished goal. Why is that a goal? We will see. Because if you attain that, you attain the ultimate purpose of human life, which can be stated in two ways. One is freedom from the cycle of birth and death, which is a common trope in all Indian philosophy, except the materialists. And the second way of putting it is attainment of fulfillment and transcendence of sorrow. Atyantika dukkha nivritti paramananda praptishya. Atyantika dukkha nivritti means uh, transcendence 
complete transcendence of sorrow, a complete cessation of sorrow. And Paramananda Prapti, attainment of the ultimate fulfillment, of ultimate bliss. That is the result promised. How do you do that? Through this enlightenment. And so this enlightenment becomes my cherished goal. That's one cherished goal. The second cherished goal is where I began. Why do you have an invocation? For the successful completion of the book, for the successful completion of our study. So that's our more practical and immediate concern. For that purpose, I take refuge in the, in the absolute. That is the meaning of the first verse. That's really a lot. But basically, it's all of Advaita Vedanta. And don't worry, I won't be spending so much time on each verse as we go along. Uh, others will sort of cruise through. All right, let me stop here and deal with uh, questions, comments. Swamiji, there's a question from Shashank in the chat. Does Akhanda equals Abheda or specifically Akhanda means no Swagata Bheda? Okay, Akhanda and Abheda are the same. Um, Akhanda is indivisible, Abheda means no difference. Uh, depending on these differences, you have multiple systems of philosophy of religion. If you admit uh, Vijati Abheda and uh, Swagata Abheda, then you have dualistic Vedanta. Vijati Abheda means other than God, there are things. And the dualistic systems say, yes, the world is there. Human beings, sentient beings are there. And they are all different from each other. And they're different from God. So this is a thoroughly dualistic system. So all of Islam and, and uh, uh, Christianity and uh, uh, say the, the theistic um, uh, Judaism and the theistic Hindu systems like uh, Dvaita Vedanta, they are all firmly dualistic. Uh, except, of course, in each of these traditions, uh, there will be the mystic, uh, those who have attained uh, a, um, a realization of oneness. So that's one system. The other kind of system would be if you admit Sajati Abheda, Brahman and other Brahmans, then that will lead to polytheism. If you admit Swagata Abheda and not other kinds of Abheda, that means internal difference, but no external difference at all, then you get Vishishta Dvaita, where Brahman is one reality, but there are internal differences. Sentient beings are there and insentient universe is there and they are all part of an organic divine whole. Okay. Um, uh, there were some raised hands. Girish. Girish, yes. You have to unmute yourself. Uh, can you hear me now? Yes, I can hear you. Okay. Uh, I, I'm afraid I have to go back to basics. I keep going back and tying myself into knots about these things. So the concept of Brahman, of Akhandam, as we are saying, is, is actually born in the empirical domain of our human minds. It would seem thus that the concept of non-dual Brahman is, is, is a mental creation, yes. uh, an abstraction, perhaps even a, a convenient fiction to explain our experiences. But on the other hand, our minds, which are conceiving this, are also illusory because they are part of the Maya projection. Yes. So, so it becomes sort of a circular thing in, in, in my mind. And, and, and I keep asking myself, so what is real? I mean, we, are we inventing Brahman and are 
Brahman inventing us, or or and and for that matter, uh, to extend that further, is is I, I understand, and people have said, and I think you have said too, that Advaita is a concept, and or a model, and uh, is it is it a model that is closer to, to say Sankhya or Yoga, and uh, so please explain, expound on that. Yes, one thing about this um, invocation is it's actually not a teaching. It just seems to encompass the entire Advaita system. What we just heard here is, is what we are going to study throughout this book and in all the Upanishads and so on and so forth. It's, uh, they're not taking it as anything accomplished or something that you have to believe in. Uh, it's just a sketch of what's to come. But straight answer to your question would be, what is the truth here? Even this Brahman and all of this, these seem to be concepts. Uh, true, the truth is you. What they are pointing out is one inescapable fact, whether you are a materialist, atheist, a theist, a Vedantin, whatever you believe in, it is you who are believing in it. It is you who disbelieve in it. It is you, you who understand it, you who fail to understand it, you who remember or fail to remember, all of that is you. What is this you? This is the inquiry uh, in, in Vedanta, we'll see. So, the straight answer of the Vedantin would be you. You are the truth. You are the truth. Uh, all truth appears to you. You validate or uh, disval uh, disvalidate, um, invalidate any kind of statement or proposition. Yeah, that way, Vedanta is very tight. Is it close to Sankhya? In some ways. But it is uh, much more revolutionary than Sankhya. Sankhya, for example, is is actually very elegant and not very difficult to uh, swallow, you know, because all that Sankhya says is um, that you are pure consciousness and apart from you, there is this material nature. You have appropriated a part of material nature into your identity. That's why you're in trouble. You think you are this body-mind, but actually body-mind is objective. They are parts of nature. And you are a consciousness apart from body-mind. And that's it. Why is this easier to understand? Because our general structure of experience is subject-object. We are subjects, we experience objects. And Sankhya just takes that one step further. It puts what we thought were subject, this body and my mind and my thoughts, and puts them in the category of objects and see the resultant freedom. And that's it. We stop them. But Advaita Vedanta says, goes much further. It goes on to say that you, this pure consciousness, it, it, it follows the Sankhya track of thinking. And then where Sankhya stops, it goes further. It says, you, the pure consciousness, are you different from all these other people? There are 63 people, people here today. Are there 63 pure consciousnesses or one? Advaita makes the radical uh, claim that we are one pure consciousness. And there are arguments to prove this and ways to understand this. It goes further. That which is, seems to be an other to consciousness. Uh, here we have Vijatiya Veda. Other than consciousness is non-conscious, insentient, material. Is that really separate from you? Or is it in some sense you? And Advaita Vedanta makes the even further radical claim, this entire universe which we are conscious of, it is nothing other than we, the consciousness. That's the meaning of the, the falsity of the universe. It's false as a separate entity apart from Brahman. It is Brahman. All these differences are appearances, uh, which is the great doctrine of Vivarta, the theory of appearance. Okay. Um, let's see. Are there other questions?
Shekhar. Namaste, Swamiji. Namaste. Uh, hope I'm not jumping ahead, but uh, uh, usually a person like you and your reflection are identical. So is it correct to say Brahman alone exists and the world is a reflection of Brahman? Uh, let me stop you right there. You and your reflection are identical. So when you look at your uh, reflection in the mirror, what do you mean by identical? The reflection in the mirror is similar to your face. But it's not you. Identical means one and the same. Only one reality. But the reflection in the mirror is, is not uh, the same as your face. If you have 10 mirrors, you'll see 10 reflections. So clearly the reflection is different. The reflection is not identical to your face. It's actually identical to the mirror. It looks like your face. So 10 mirrors, 10 reflections. If the mirror is con concave, it will not even look like your face. The mirror is convex, it will not even look like your face. So reflection is never identical to the original. Reflection is rather an appearance of the original, given a reflective medium. That's one way of putting it. So is the world a reflection of Brahman? Um, reflection of Brahman, yes and no. We will see later on, all this will come up. Idea of Maya, what is Brahman, what is the Atman? how did we become these sentient beings? We seem to be different from Brahman. How does this world appear? All of that will be discussed. And the whole methodology of Vedanta will be discussed. I won't go into it now. Yes. Next. Punita Ji. Pranam Swamiji. So yes. one of the things that uh, this Akhila Dharam uh, brings to me is uh, in his own humorous ways that Alan Watts would point to um, our own experience of going into deep sleep and he would say uh, jokingly just reflect on the thing that if you go into deep sleep and never wake up hmm. and he says if you reflect on it uh, more seriously uh, this whole thing kind of brings uh, more reality to the fact that we are the substratum because the world as we know it won't exist anymore so only when we wake up, the world comes into being as we know it in terms of all the differences and me and you and everybody else. But if we never woke up, that's it. And he actually, so funnily enough, he supposedly died that way. I mean, he went into deep sleep and never woke up. So I don't know. I mean, if you could, uh, I know you are the one who introduced me to Alan Watt. So you probably know what he was pointing to. Uh, or was it something just for fun? Uh, yes, this is the influence of Mandukya. Um, yeah, so this is the advantage and the problem of having started at the top. So we are right now starting from the base camp, building up, you know, getting the building blocks of Advaita Vedanta and slowly building up. We'll come to that eventually. Uh, Mandukya takes a very high stand, a non-dualistic stand. Uh, everything, you are the witness of the presence and absence of experiences. Presence of experience or presence of objects. Presence of objects, waking state. People and the world, your own body, uh, dream state. No external world, but it seems to be like that in the mind. Still object. They are, they are, they are mental objects. And the absence of objects, which is deep sleep. A blankness which is experienced. But the, the attention is always towards the object or the absence of the objects. We are immersed we are enthralled in the waking state. We are uh, bewitched by our dreams. 
and we are dulled and deadened by the uh, blankness of deep sleep. But who is the one or what is the one uh, to which these three are shining and disappearing? That is what Alan Watts is pointing towards and Vedanta is pointing towards. And it's a very stunning claim. Whatever you see in the world right now, this entire vast universe, so full of temptation, so full of trouble, so full of anxiety, is exactly the same what you experience in deep sleep. There is nothing more right now than what was there in deep sleep. Can you imagine? Is that scary or is that a big, big relief? Relief. <laughs> yes, if it is true, now you can experience this world, both yourself and everything around you, with great peace. With the deep peace of Sushupti, in fact, don't fall asleep, but with the complete rest and unconcern of Sushupti, deep sleep, you can actually experience this world with um, what Swami Vivekananda called intense activity in the midst of eternal calm. Eternal calm is what you experience as in your real nature. Okay, good question. But several steps ahead of what we are doing right now. Yes. Maharaj Pranam. Namaskar. Uh, I have a question. Uh, why, why did Sankha need to have multiple Purushas and not just one Purusha to explain their philosophy? I mean, I was, I'm just trying to think that I, they could have just one Purusha and Prakriti and several body minds and they could still have the same. Why is, what's the significance of having multiple Purushas, each one of us being a separate Purusha? Sankhya is fundamentally pluralistic. They give five major arguments to um, say why we require several Purushas. Um, they take pluralism as given. So uh, multiple external realities, which are all products of Prakriti, and each of us a separate uh, pure consciousness. Why separate? The arguments which they give are like this, that if we were one pure consciousness, one Purusha, then the bondage of one would be the bondage of all, the liberation of one. If my guru became liberated, then we would all become, I would become liberated, everybody would become liberated. Uh, if the death of one would be the death of everybody, the uh, birth of one would be the birth of everybody, because we are all one. The uh, waking of one would be the waking of everybody. If one fell asleep, then everybody would fall asleep. But you know, these arguments do not hold water. We can easily see that here you are importing properties of body and mind into the Purusha. It's the body which is born. If one body yes. is born, does not mean that yes, all sir. bodies will be born. So why will you say that all Purushas are born if the body is born? So on. But that's the way they look at it. If you take that step, one more step there, that it's all one consciousness. Advaita Vedanta at that point asks, if we are many consciousnesses, how do you distinguish? Why would you say there are many pure consciousnesses? There is no answer to that. So Advaita would say that we are one pure consciousness. All distinctions are of body and mind. And notice the first word of this book is Akhandam. No distinction, no difference. So no distinction or no difference means all these distinctions and differences which Sankhya talks about or all the other systems talk about, they are experienced, but they are not real. This is one thing we have to understand, which Advaita Vedanta catches hold of one thing. Notice one thing. 
that the differences in the world cannot be denied. We are experiencing it. Don't you experience it? There are so many people. We see so many people. We hear so many things. We, we note the presence of so many millions and billions of entities. So that cannot be, our experience cannot be denied. If you deny, if you say, no, you are not seeing many people. You're just seeing one reality. That is madness. Then you cannot proceed. You cannot proceed with any kind of philosophy. But what Advaita cleverly does is, Advaita says, we are not denying that you experience division. We are not denying that you experience difference. But that difference or division which you experience, is it real or is it apparent? Often, where there is unity, we experience difference. Dreams. In our dream world, we experience so many things, so many people, so many places, so many events. World of difference. And yet, when we wake up, what we say? What do we say? It was all our mind only. We experience a variety of golden ornaments. And yet, we know it is gold only. We experience 10,000 waves in the Atlantic Ocean. We know it is one mass of water only. So, uh, multiplicity can be experienced with an underlying oneness that we know. And that's what Advaita Vedanta takes advantage of. Advaita Vedanta never denies that you experience multiplicity, but questions what you experience, is it real or is it an appearance? And we have enough examples of appearances, errors, dreams, you know, Branti, Brahma, which means error. So Advaita makes a big deal of that, uses that difference. So this is the crucial point, that there can be a difference between experience and reality. The famous British idealist philosopher Bradley, uh, he said uh, in his book, Appearance and Reality, what appears is not real and the reality never appears. <laughs> He's playing on the word appearance in English, two meanings. Something that you experience is an appearance and something that is pretending is an appearance. He appears to be a nice person. What do you mean? What do you mean? He's not a nice person in reality. That means there's a difference between appearance and reality. That's what that difference Advaita Vedanta exploits. If you say there's only one reality, non-dual, and that's it. No, no, no. Then you have to explain why, it is, why this multiplicity is appearing. So that is the core meaning of Brahma Satyam. Brahman alone is real. Jagat Mithya, the world is an appearance. And the clinching thing is you are Brahman. <laughs> so, yeah. Sushmaji, Sushmaji, you have to unmute yourself. I know I, I'm I'm a beginner, so I'm so happy that you started the, this book for me. I'm very happy for that. I have a question. Was maybe I don't know. I was wondering. You said Atmanam Akila Dhar Akiladharam. Yes, Atmanam Akiladharam. So do you have to realize it or you have, I have to tell my mind, I have to keep telling, no, I am this. You have to realize it. Yeah. So as, as clearly as you know that you are Sushma, as clearly as that, you have to realize it should become a natural fact. So for that, you have to understand what is yes. Akhiladharam, what is meant by Atman. And then the, the point of Advaita Vedanta is that this will become clear to us. It will first become intellectually clear to us and then it will deepen into enlightenment. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Vedanta makes the claim that it's already a fact. And it's very unfortunate that we don't see it. 
And Vedanta just wants to point out to us what is a fact and help us to see it. And makes the promise, if you see it, that is enlightenment. Already an accomplished fact, Siddha. Siddha means it's an accomplished fact. You don't have to actually do anything. You have to realize what already exists. If you realize that, you will be free of it. So all our suffering is born of a mass of ignorance, ignorance about ourselves. It is like a person who has delusions, maybe psychotic or schizophrenic. And the person you know, there is nothing wrong with the world. There is nothing wrong with the world. But that person feels terrible. People are persecuting me. You know, Beautiful Mind, the movie was there. And there's so much problem is there. And you know, there's nothing wrong at all. And the person could just snap out of that and experience the real world as it is, would see that all the problems are solved. Similarly, in Advaita Vedanta, you already are Brahman. There's absolutely no problem here. You are fine as it is, but you have to investigate your own nature to, to discover that. Yeah. Good Hello? Yes, I can. Oh, yeah. Hi, Swami. Nice Hello. to have you back. Yes. So I have a new problem. Uh, so whenever I go somewhere, I try to see the oneness in, in everything and in everyone. And uh, today I saw a number of homeless and uh, I usually always give a little, but now I see them with different eyes and I suffer more and I, I can no longer just pass without helping, but I don't have the financial means to help everyone in New York. But I find a true struggle with it now. Whereby before I said, okay, I cannot help everyone. But today I, I suffered because I literally saw the underlying oneness. I saw the divine consciousness. I saw God in everyone suffering, going through the garbage. How do I deal with that? If I, if I would have the means, of course, I would go around distributing money, but I don't. Yes. Yet, and do it in two ways. One is at the practical level. Do something, take some action, which you can, which is possible for you. Maybe you donate it even if to one individual or to an organization or something like that. You take action within your, uh, within Gabriel's uh, limits, what, what is possible for Gabriel. And you know, that's very little. There's very little that we can do to alleviate the sufferings of the world. So you pray to the Lord to pray to God for, to bless them and to help people. These are the two things that you can do. Remember, Philosophically speaking, you are making a jump. The oneness within which, which is within everybody. That's one thing. And Gabriel. Gabriel is a particular instance of that oneness. Gabriel is not the oneness. The reality of Gabriel is On an one. intellectual level, but I'm trying to apply the knowledge and I feel the when more you apply I study, the, knowledge, the more when I you apply the knowledge, When you apply the knowledge, these, do these two things. One is take some practical step to help people. And, I do, I do. And you do. And uh, pray to the Lord to help them. Pray to them. Ultimately, it's the Lord who helps. We do very little. So pour out your suffering in, uh, in sincere prayer to God to help those who are in suffering. But can we not be the instrument to serve him? You are. I mean, I worked 32 years for the United Nations. I worked right, in Africa right. and developing so countries. I mean, I yes. feel... And if you, instrument. if you feel that way, then, then only one can become a true instrument uh, in the hands of God. Then only karma yoga becomes real, that you are worshipping God in all beings. Yes, that, that's true service then. 
All right, Gabriel. Thank you. We are okay, ending thank you. beautiful note. Yes. Let me there was one question in the chat. There's some questions. Short question from Charles. If I am Brahman equals I am God, then how can God create me? Okay. I am Brahman is equal to I am God, then how can God create me? Okay. These are the things which the Vedanta Sara will deal with in great detail. Notice, there are three things here. I, Brahman, God. And uh, initially, they all three will be different. God is different, I am different, and Brahman is the absolute. So we begin with this, uh, uh, with actually with God, individual, and world, a triangle of God, individual, and world. I am the individual, here is the world that is clear to me, and there is something called God, which religion tells me, holy people tell me that there is something called God. We begin with this triangle. This is the triangle of religion. Advaita Vedanta wants to say that there is an ultimate reality, Brahman, which appears as this triangle, as this triangle of God, world, and individual. There's one Brahman which appears as all three. Not only that, you are, you are Brahman. God is also Brahman. And the world is an appearance of Brahman. Uh, it's a superimposition on Brahman. So we'll leave it at that. There'll be a, in a very detailed discussion towards the end of the book. Uh, in what sense am I Brahman? Om Shanti 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 Hari Om Tatsat Shri Ramakrishna Raparnamastu Thank you very much.